this morning. Uh, one other thing I forgot to mention, um, if you've noticed the outside of the church, you notice a lot more from the inside. We're getting the, um, the, the coverings of the windows redone. If you have some special place in your heart for the old plexiglass that has yellowed and weathered, uh, we have some available. If anyone would like to take a piece of the church home, uh, it is available in the backyard. Go around, just take whatever you'd like. Um, we will not be upset if it all disappears before the end of the day. So, uh, And there will be a few more pieces to come as well. So it's all fair game. Okay, if you would uh, turn with me in your Bible or in your worship folder to the book of James, chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. And won't you stand with me as we read the word of God this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask that right now you would come and be present with us. Lord, as we read your word, as we hear your word, that you would speak into our hearts. Open our ears, open our minds. Open our hearts to the truth of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 5, starting in verse 7, going through verse 12. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is God's inspired word for us this morning, so please be seated. Now James starts with everybody's favorite words be patient. Right, I, I've yet to meet anyone who truly loves. To hear this, although if you recall back to when you were a child, it seemed like everybody was telling you to be patient pretty much all the time, right? You know, I want to get taller. Be patient. I want to get stronger. Be patient. You know, on, on December 26th, we're asking, what do you mean it's going to be a whole other year until the next Christmas? Be patient. We have Aruka Salt from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory saying, I want an Oompa Loompa. Now. now. Be patient. See, as long as I can remember, I've been sort of a procrastinator. Um, some might call that extreme patience. Um, others might see it more as laziness. Um, but on at least on one occasion before, a big project that I had coming up for school, um, I remember specifically thinking, I really hope that Jesus comes back before Friday because I don't want to have to work on that thing that I've got coming up. Have you ever been there before? Now, when is it that we find ourselves longing for the return of Jesus? 
Is it when things are going well? Or is it when we're experiencing the difficulties and the realities and the hardships of life? You know, when our lives are comfortable and pleasant and all of our plans are turning out just like we want them to, we rarely long for the return of Jesus. But, you know, show of hands, how many of you right now have everything that you ever wanted and dreamed of? Anybody? Okay. You know, for many of us, life just didn't turn out exactly like we had hoped. And see, for the church of the first century, that's where they were as well. See, when they were presented with the gospel, they heard this message that that Christ had died, Christ had risen, and Christ will come again. And it's, it's the core message of the gospel. It's one of the essentials of our faith. If you remember the EPC, a member of this church, these are the essentials. That all Christians believe that Jesus died for our sins, that Jesus rose again from the dead and resumed his rightful place with God the Father, and that also one day he will return. See, and this probably won't surprise you, but James isn't writing this letter to a group of grubby adolescents or extremely lazy, procrastinating teenagers. He's writing to followers of Jesus who live in the Roman Empire in the first century. They're living a very difficult life filled with persecution and tragedy every single day. See, many of these men and women have given up everything to follow Jesus. They lost their homes, they lost their families, they lost lifelong friends, even their businesses, all because they confessed belief in Jesus. And now they're asking this question, how long, God? You know, we know Christ died and we know Christ rose, but how long until Jesus comes back again? When will Jesus return? Now, if you're a good Calvinist Presbyterian, you know the answer to that, right? When will Jesus return? Soon. Well, how are we to wait? Patiently. See, waiting and patience aren't exactly the same thing. It's possible, very possible, to, to wait without being patient. You know, we do that all the time. Have you ever been to Disney World? Or how about the checkout line at Costco on a Saturday? It's not even a checkout line. It's a checkout aisle. Right? Some translators of the Bible use the word long-suffering instead of patience. I'm not sure I like that word because long-suffering doesn't sound very nice. Maybe short-suffering we would prefer than long-suffering. But you know, the one thing that all Christians are waiting for is the return of Jesus. Again, that's one of the core doctrines of our faith. Uh, New Testament scholar R. Kent Hughes writes that the New Testament contains over 300 references to Christ's return, which is one out of every 13 verses in the New Testament. So you've probably heard that when the Bible repeats itself, it does so for emphasis, just like that toddler who's screaming, mommy, 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 with the hands underneath the bathroom door. You know, one out of 13 New Testament verses talks about the second coming of Jesus. Now, that's, that's a lot. That means that this is something that is emphasized and this is something that is very important. Scripture says that we should long for the king to return and make everything right again. Now, if you, if you turned over to the very last page of your Bible, 
in Revelation chapter 22, you'll see that three times Jesus says, I am coming when? Soon. I'm coming soon. And so ever since, all the apostles, all the, all the Christians, all the disciples, every generation of believers since Jesus left have been longing for the day that he would return. And they all expected him to come back in their lifetimes. Now, were they wrong? Was Jesus wrong when he said, I'm coming soon? And here we are almost exactly 2,000 years later. You know, how many millennia does your definition of the word soon contain? But listen to this from 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. A day with God could be like a thousand years to us. It's kind of like a mayfly, which if you've seen these things before, they live the entirety of their life cycle within a single day, 24 hours. If you've ever encountered one, you might think that that's 24 hours too long. But but the typical human lifespan to a mayfly would be 28,000 lifetimes. So if a thousand years to us is like a day to God, how many days has it been since Jesus left? Almost two, but not quite. So how do we wait for Jesus? How do we wait for God to work in this world? Why do we wait for Jesus? And when can we stop waiting for Jesus? That's what we're going to talk about today. So the first thing is, how do we wait? Well, James says by practicing patience, he gives this command, be patient. Now, in the Greek, this is a second person active imperative, which means that this is something that we do active. It's not something that happens to us. This is a command for patience. It's not something that naturally develops over time as we wait. Patience isn't something passive. It's not something that happens to us, but it's something that we can actually put into practice. And the first thing that James says is, hey, look to the fields. Look at the farmer. The farmer shows us what the work of active patience looks like. So you think about the farmer. He goes out and he plows his field and he prepares his field. He, he gathers all the weeds and then he plants the seed. And this is back-breakingly difficult work. And then what does the farmer do? He prays for rain. The early rains in the autumn, the later rains in the early spring, and he waits for growth and fruit. See, the, the farmer can only manipulate the field but the farmer cannot manipulate the weather. The farmer can't make the field grow. See, at that point, it's entirely out of the farmer's control and completely up to God. And uh, Douglas Moo writes that every reference to early and late rains in the Old Testament is actually affirming the faithfulness of the Lord. So, So the prophets use this phrase, the early rains and the late rains, to talk about this idea that we are faithfully waiting on the Lord to do his work. And we read earlier in Luke chapter 12, Jesus commanded his disciples not to be anxious, and he asked this question, which of you 
by being anxious can add even a single hour to his span of life. See, anxiety is what happens when we try to take control of things that we cannot. And patience is actively trusting in God to handle the things that we can't. See, God, going to God, knowing that there is nowhere else to go, that's what active patience looks like. And again, it's not just that the farmer buys the field and sits around and waits for the crops to grow. The farmer prepares it, he works it, he does actively wait. But the farmer knows that there's a limit to what he can do. And so we wait patiently like the farmer because it's not just the farmer who is patient, but we find in the Bible that God is patient as well. So we go back to 2 Peter chapter 3. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. And this is right after James, so you're just flipping a, a couple of pages. And this is what Peter writes. Starting again with verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord... One day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they are burned? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, Peter writes, God is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Why? Not wishing that any would perish. The Lord is merciful and gracious. That is his character. That's a part of his nature. God, as he revealed himself to Moses on the mountain after he had given Moses the Ten Commandments and Moses came down off the mountain having seen and been in the presence of God, came down to a, a spiritually adulterous people who had built themselves a golden calf and had started to bow down and worship it. And Moses, in his anger, broke these tablets that God gave him and, and went back onto the mountain and asked the Lord to, to come by. And God, fresh off the heels of the spiritual adultery, passes by the people of God, and as he comes by, this is what he declares of himself The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, what does the, the patience of God look like? He, God endures our sinful waywardness, God endures our sinfulness. What does my patience look like? Am I patience with the sinfulness of the people around me? 
Do I expect or even demand instant results and immediate change from from people who may not even know Jesus or those people who are young in their faith? When it took me years and years of trial and error and failure to achieve any sort of spiritual maturity? Or do I find myself constantly asking the question, why are they doing that? Or why won't they just stop doing this? See, if I'm only growing more sensitive to the sins of others, that's actually the exact opposite of spiritual maturity. See, do we expect people who don't know Jesus to act like us? A a true sign of Christian maturity is a sensitivity towards my own sin and a patience towards the sin of others. And now it's, it's patience, not acceptance of the things that people do that go against what God is doing. But if I'm growing more sensitive in regarding the sin in my life, I'm growing more like Jesus. And if I'm growing more patient with the sin in the lives of other people, guess what? I'm actually growing more like Jesus. See, God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We're called to this active patience because God is still working right now. The the church is experiencing this difficulty and this hardship, and they're asking that question, how long? You know, we're we're suffering here. Can't God, don't you see what's happening in our lives? Don't you care? Why would you possibly allow this stuff to happen to us? And what does God say? Well, after he points to the farmer, James points to the Old Testament prophets, and then also to Job. And let's just say, if you're in the early century, early first century church, this is not what you want to hear. Hey, remember those guys that were obedient to me? Remember how they were treated? Remember the life of Jeremiah? Do you remember the life of Elijah? Do you remember the life of Daniel? Do you remember the life of Job? How many of us are praying for for the ministry of the life of Job in our lives actively? You know, we love to talk about the patience of Job, but we don't want to do what it took to acquire that patience. See, James is saying, if you're experiencing persecution in your faith, you're in good company. Now just consider Job for a moment. This is thought to be the oldest book in all of the Bible. And God is put on trial. He's accused of negligence and apathy and impotence. And God responds to all these questions by simply asking questions in response. This is what God says back to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Are you able to plot out the course of the stars in the sky? Could you rule over all of the animal kingdom? Are you really possibly suggesting that somehow I made a mistake in your life? And Job's response is simply this. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. See, see, Job comes eventually to God. He's got questions. He's got doubts. He's got concerns. Everything that he loved in life was taken from him. And he goes to God, and yet he does so in a way that is not groveling. It's not passive. He's struggling, and he's questioning, and he's honest. But that flame of faith was never extinguished in his heart. See, James says, in your patience establish or strengthen your hearts and why do our hearts need to be strengthened and established it's because our hearts will be tested 
You know, in, in the words of the late, great Tom Petty, waiting is the what? The hardest part. Right? But not, not waiting on a girl, not waiting on a guy. Waiting on the return of the Lord in this world that's full of sin and suffering. And it's, it's not just a little bit here and a little bit there, but it's everywhere. Everywhere we look, the world is going to test us, and the world does test us, the circumstances of life. They're going to drive us to the brink of disaster almost daily. Has anyone been there? You know, earlier, earlier this week, we, we heard from an adoptive mother who's trying to find out information on her child in China. Of course, we're, we're also adopting, and uh, she found a picture of her, she was, received a picture of her son with a birthday party, and he had a picture of my family with him. And she got very concerned that this little boy had been placed with a different family than the one that he'd been waiting on for three years. And finally, Megan and, and she connected with each other, and, and she said, no, 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 we're, we're not adopting that boy, right? That's, he's not ours. But then as Megan began to think, you know, she went weeks without knowing who this other family was, thinking that, that all that she had labored for was now in vain. Megan said, if I, if I had received the same picture, I'd be in a ditch somewhere. Of which her friend said, well, we'd go pull you out of the ditch. And we'd get the winch. See, it's, it's easy in our, in our waiting to turn and to grumble against each other. That's what James is talking about historically the, the church has been really good at shooting our own. You know, we're, we're always worried about threats from the outside, and yet if you look at what happens to the church, it's, it's what happens in here that does the most damage to us. We become so consumed by, by thinking about all the terrible things happening in the world outside of us that, that we allow, at times, our anxiety and our fear to overcome who we are in Christ. But James says, behold, the judge is actually standing at the door. Remember the first time Jesus came as a servant, as the lowest of the low. And when he returns, he comes back as the judge and the king. Uh, Simon Kistermacher said that, that every sinner is only one heartbeat away from the judge. Wow. See, but there is a purpose in our patience. And God can do amazing things. The scripture tells us that all that God has planned and purposed will come to pass. There is nothing that can stop him, that there is, there is nothing we can do to coerce him. And that is a very good thing. See, God sees us where we are, wallowing in our sin and our sickness and our sadness. And he loves us right there, but he doesn't leave us there. See, God went to work and he's not waiting for us to get our act together before he is willing to interact with us. I think it was uh, George this week in our session meeting said... There's nothing we can do to make God love us more. And there's nothing we can do to make him love us any less. And what a great promise of the purpose and plan of God in our lives. See, God saw our helpless estate and our miserable condition. And then he went to work. The eternal son of God, seated forever at the right hand of the father, stooped low. He took on the form of a man was born to a young virgin woman into a poor family, was driven from his home, lived a meager life. God came low for us. So how long must we be patient? When will God's power and plan finally be revealed and set all of the problems of this place to rest? 
Well, when the king returns, all will be restored. See, scripture says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now, some will bow in honor and some will bow in horror. But all will bow before the king and the judge as his purpose and his patience make way for his power. And as we practice active patience, longing for the repentance of our neighbors and the repairing of our king, we won't do that perfectly. The, the prophets didn't do it right. Job didn't. The disciples didn't. Only Jesus. See, Jesus saw the purpose in his patience. Jesus said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Thy will be done. Those are some of the easiest words to say but some of the hardest to really believe. See, J Jesus said them as he's sweating blood and he's filled with anxieties. He's looking towards the cross. We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks right here. But what was the Lord's will for Jesus? It was the will of the Lord to crush him, to place on him all of our sin and iniquities we find in Isaiah 53. And why was that? It was because by his wounds, we would be healed. The prophet writes, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. See, by his patience, what we deserved, he received. And what he deserved, we received through him. When the king returns, we shall see him as he is. We will rejoice in the patience and the purpose of the suffering servant. And we will bow before the righteous judge and the king of kings. Won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are doing a work even now in this place, in our lives, and in this world. God, we confess it's hard. There's a lot of things that you have allowed us to experience that, that we never would have chosen. Lord, we, we deal with pain. We deal with heartbreak. We deal with grief and sorrow. And, and yet, Lord, your word tells us that there is a purpose to all of this. Lord, that your plan is coming together even now. Lord, that the return of Jesus is ever closer and even more soon than it once was. So Lord, empower us. Allow us to actively wait in patience. Lord, to see Jesus, to look to him, and to cry out for him. We ask in his name. Amen. Please stand and join me.